Good morning, Trinity Church. Now, there we go. Now I can see you. <laughs> hey, I am so glad you're here today to be a part of our worship and our community. And um, you remember that uh, start of November, uh, Pastor Bill gave us a challenge every morning in November to come before God in prayer and, and just say, God, I am here to serve you and do the good works that you've called me to do. Uh, we're going to put on the screen in just a moment uh, the uh, passage, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that he uh, encouraged us to pray every morning. But I also want to give you just a footnote of history. Uh, I'm teaching the Old Testament for Biola University right now, and we're, we're just in the Exodus section. And one of the fascinating things is, as God has the ten plagues on Egypt, remember the ten plagues, his whole purpose was this conflict between he and Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at that time. And the, the question was, who will my people serve? Will they serve you, Pharaoh, or are they going to serve me? And so you have this incredible conflict where Pharaoh hardens his own heart, but about halfway through, what happens? God hardens Pharaoh's heart, as though to say to him, oh, you can't quit. No, I know this is getting hard. You're going to probably want to just capitulate, but I'm not going to let you because I want everyone to know who is the most powerful being in the world, and it is Yahweh and not you. But the whole purpose was to serve God. And isn't it fascinating? We come into the New Testament, and what does God say about us as his people? We are here to serve him and to do good work. So let's put this passage on the screen. I'm going to ask you to stand one more time as we go through November. We're going to do this again a couple more times on Sunday mornings. But with just a sense of prayer, would you pray this with me if you're able to stand and just, again, remind ourselves, why are we here and what is it that God wants us to do? So let's take a look at this. Good morning, Lord. Because of your great mercy, I offer up myself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. This is my worship to you today. Help me to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. I want to discern and do your will today, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. And this is true. As we serve God, as we do his good will, man, it impacts us, it pleases God, and it changes the worlds in which we live. But today, we're continuing in our sermon series in endurance. And uh, you'll remember from last week, uh, Hebrews, we discovered that endurance is intended uh, to be a way of life for Christians. It is uh, designed to be a mental perspective that we're, we're to have about all of life. So it's this willful determination to hang in there for all that we're worth. In fact, God says, this is my expectation of you. This is my call upon you, that you would be people who endure. But the beautiful thing is that God doesn't just command us to endure, but he also says, let me help you endure. And so today we're going to take a little bit of time and talk about how he enables us to do that. So we're not just left wondering if we're going to have the stamina to get through things. Uh, we're not just left wondering where the strength is going to come from to kind of muddle along through life. Um, we're, we're not coming to the end of ourselves with nowhere to go and no hope in sight. God actually comes to us and he says, I, I'm calling you to endure. I want to help you endure. And today, God says, I'm going to give you some fresh doses of things that will help you do that. And in particular, in our passages today, it's three things. It's joy. We looked a little bit at that last week. It's hope. And it's harmony. So God is going to be um, 
pointing these things out to us, and we might be saying to ourselves, no, wait a second, when I go through things that are tough and I have to endure, the last thing I have in mind is joy, and the last thing I have is hope, and I'm certainly not at peace and calm with the relationships around me. I'm, I'm kind of struggling through this. How do these things go together? Hope and joy and endurance. Well, they're only possible because God deals in diametrics. God is a God who deals in things that are opposite. So when it looks like to us, these are two diametrical things. They could never be coalesced or brought together. God says, no, because of who I am, I can do that for you. I can give you joy, and I can give you hope, and I can give you harmony in your relationships as you endure. So that's our goal for today. We're going to look at two passages in Romans, but before we get there, take a look at what James has to say about this. James, the early leader of the New Testament church, recognized how joy and hope and, and uh, struggle went together. He says in James 1, 2, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. So you see the diametrics there? Hey, you got to think about this in a joyful manner, exuberant manner, when you hit all of these walls in your life. He goes on to say, for you know, and that's the crux of it, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And he challenges us and he says, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing, so that you can become mature. So do you see how God wants to bring these together? He says you need to think about it this way, and man, that is potent diametrical stuff. Um, joy and trials, hand in hand, maturity and coexisting with the very moments in life when we feel the weakness. But God can do that for us. The key is this. Do we consider it that way? Do we think about it that way? Do we approach it that way so that when suffering enters our life, which typically pushes us toward doubt and fear and an unsettled mind and heart, can we trust in God and have this joyful, steadfast endurance erupting in our lives, this completeness of life? God says, yep, you can do that. And when it happens, it's time to pull out the streamers and balloons, to whoop it up, to have a moment of joy because of what God is doing in our lives. So with that in mind... We're going to look at these uh, mainly two things, hope and harmony. Uh, on Thanksgiving weekend, Steve, Pastor Steve is going to be sharing a, a much more broad stroke uh, about the things that God does in our lives when we endure. But today I want to focus on just these two things, hope and harmony. So if you've come this morning wishing you had more hope in your life, in your heart, if you've come this morning, you're sitting here wishing you had more peaceful, calm relationships with people around you as you go through the ringer, God says, we can do that for you today, so you're in the right place. If you have your Bibles this morning, and I, I hope you do, I know you do, would you open them to Romans chapter 5, and we're also going to look at chapter 15. So Paul's thinking about difficulties and endurance, and of course, he's a great spokesman for that, having gone through so much in his own life. But you notice in Romans chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5, he writes this. Therefore, now he's looking back at the first four chapters, how there are none righteous before God, Abraham had faith, now he gets to chapter 5, and he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we also have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. There it is again, right? Joy and sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Some of your texts say proven character. And endurance or character produces hope. Here's that hope again. And hope doesn't put us to shame. It isn't a false hope. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been, uh, who has been given to us. So the first thing we notice, and there's four things we're going to look at today in these two uh, gifts that God gives us, is that God's gift of salvation prepares us to endure and exalt in the hope of God's glory. So God's gift of salvation, what he did the moment you and I came to faith in Jesus Christ, all the stuff that he gave us at that moment, is actually what prepares us to endure and ultimately to exalt in the hope of God's glory. So you notice in verse 1, it says that you and I have been justified. That's a great theological term. Many of you have a sense of what that means, but for those of us who may be still thinking, well, you know, what is this idea of justification? Literally, uh, it is the act of God to declare out loud in the courtroom of heaven that you or I are not guilty of all of our past wrongdoings. It's an incredible, dramatic moment in heaven. When a person comes to faith in Christ, there is this declaration that justifies them, that declares they are not guilty. One Sunday night, 61 years ago, my young brother and I knelt our knees in our bedroom in our home, and God justified me that night. I'll never forget it. Looking back now, I know that in the heavenly halls of heaven, God brought down his, his gavel on his desk, on his throne, and he loudly proclaimed uh, for all of heaven to hear, this dirty, rotten scoundrel, Doug Baker, is no longer guilty of his past sins. I declare him totally innocent. There are no hefty fines that he has to pay. There is no community service I'm demanding. He is free to go in life. He is freed from his past sins. Now, imagine that. For those of you who have come to Jesus Christ, this is what happened in heaven in that moment. All of my wrongdoings, all of my past failures, not guilty. How does God do that? How can God do that? Isn't he a holy, righteous God? Doesn't he condemn the guilty and rescue the innocent? Doesn't he have this sense of justice? What gives him the right to declare me not guilty when I am guilty? He can do that because of what Jesus did. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 21. You might write this down. It's not in your notes. In Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, bringing the world back to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and giving us the message of reconciliation, we, the church. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. And notice the last statement here. God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that an incredible moment? It should impact us at the deepest level that we are not guilty when we come to Christ. A couple of months ago, I was pulled over by the CHP on Highway 10 for towing my small box trailer in the wrong lane. You know, you have all these trucks there, 
and I need to get somewhere, and so instead of being in slow lane, I just kind of eased over. Well, the law says if you're towing any kind of trailer, you're a truck, and you better get back in the slow lane. So I was quickly reminded of that as this very kind CHP officer pulled me off. I pulled off the highway. He comes over. He says, you know why I stopped? You know the whole thing. Basically, according to the law, I was guilty. I didn't do anything horribly wrong, but I was guilty. And so guess what? I get a summons to the Moreno Valley Court, right? And I've got to appear there. And there's going to be this hefty fine, and I've got a black mark on my DMV record, and my insurance rates are going to skyrocket, all because of this trailer in the wrong lane. But folks, what if? What if when I appeared in court that day, I stepped forward to the bench, and as I did so, the judge stood up, took off his black robe, came around to the front of the bench, and hugged me? you got a whole bunch of people who are waiting their turn, right? And they're kind of watching this, like, what is going on? He gives me this tight squeeze, and he says, Doug, I know you did the wrong thing. Clear as day, you're guilty. But I love you, and I want to help you. And so, Doug, I'm going to pay your hefty fine. I'm going to go to the driving school to take your test to get it off your record, and I will get 100% because I wrote the test. And today, you're going to go free. There's, there's not going to be anything on your record. It's not going to affect your DMV. There's no fine to pay, no increased insurance costs. How shocking would that be? How joyful would I be? How desperate would the other individuals who are guilty of crime be as they're looking at him saying, is he going to do that for me too? And the beautiful thing is that God has done that for every person in the world. He has offered this gift of freedom from sin. But it's only when we take it and accept it. I could have stood there at the court and said, no, no it's okay. I'll, I'll pay the fine. I'm guilty. I'll live with it. It'll be on my record. No, I, was, I would be so happy. I ended up paying the fine because the judge didn't do that for me. <laughs> Took driving school, got it off my record, you know. But this is the imagery in heaven, right? God makes this statement about us at the very moment of your choice and my choice to recognize Jesus as our Lord and Savior and to be forgiven. And the text says, look at what it says. Because of that, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not just the peace of God that Philippians writes about when we're anxious, the peace of God guards our hearts and minds. This is peace with God. I'm no longer at odds with him. He and I are no longer at, at battle because of my guilt and his justice. Um, I'm no longer under his condemnation. Uh, I'm no longer afraid of meeting him at the end of life. This will be a joyous moment because I am not guilty in his sight. I'm no longer distanced from him by my sins. In fact, the idea of peace here is, is the idea of binding, binding together what has been separated, bringing it back together into a harmon harmonious whole. William Newell, one of the authors I read this week, put it this way. Peace means that the war is done. Peace with God means that God has nothing against us. This means that God has fully judged sin upon Christ, our substitute, that God was so wholly satisfied with Christ's sacrifice that he will eternally remain so, never taking up the judgment of our sin again, that God is looking at the blood of Christ, not at our sins. All claims against us were met when Christ made peace by the blood of his cross, so we have peace with God. This is so important for us as Christians because it's what's leading us to the hope 
But he says, when you've been justified, you get a peace with God. You don't have to worry anymore about God looking at you in a negative way. He loves you, and he wants you to thrive, and he wants you to serve. So we get this peace with God, and then he says we get this gift of grace in which we stand. Notice that in the text? So we get all of the invaluable treasure trove of God's riches in our lives, the indwelling Holy Spirit, the gift of wisdom, a new perspective, new desires, changed habits, all of these gifts of grace. And finally, he gets to this main idea of hope. Notice what he says. God's gift of grace leads to rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Through him, we obtained access into this grace, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So all that God has done for us prepares us to rejoice in hope, prepares us to have this feeling of exuberance, to, and literally, the word is to exalt over something. So think about this. It's like reveling in that great Black Friday purchase you made, right? My family stood in line. Actually, we got to the, the sporting goods store at 4 in the morning. I wanted to be first, and we were, but nobody was there. So my wife went and bought donuts at the local donut shop, and we sat there till 6, and finally a line started going. But we bought snowboards. It was like, yes, we got snowboards at a great price. Exalting. It's like... Uh, busting a seam over a new grandchild, exalting, congratulating ourselves for successfully reaching retirement, or, or being a person who can pat ourselves on the back because our team had the winning points at the end of the season. It's this sense of exuberance and exaltation. And he says, we do that over the hope of the glory of God. So what is that? Andy Davis has a, a book called Two journeys, and he writes in there what this is. We'll put it on the screen and take a look at it. He says, what is the glory of God? There's two different ways to understand that, I think, and I think they're both fair. First, he says, we, we, we are rejoicing in the hope of seeing God's glory, okay? We're going to get to see him before long. We're going to get to see the brightness, what Moses couldn't survive seeing, what Peter, James, and John saw only a part of on the Mount of Transfiguration, what the Apostle Paul saw but couldn't describe and wasn't permitted to describe, we are going to see that face to face. Wow. And you've never seen anything in this earth that compares with it. And therefore, for you, whether you're young or old, if you're a Christian, the best things are yet to come. Isn't that great? A Christian is essentially a forward-looking person. He says, even if they're lying on their deathbed, they're forward-looking. Okay, he says, that's one respect or aspect of the hope of the glory of God. The other is, I want to be transformed by it. There is a glory that happens in us. It's not external to us. It actually changes us. Remember Moses' face, he says, shown because he was in the presence of God. What do you think it's going to be like for you to be fully in the presence of God? It's going to radically transform you into his image, the perfection of God, and we rejoice in that hope. Someday, I'm not going to be like this anymore. I'm not going to be a sinner. I'm not going to be corrupt. I'm not going to struggle. My body's not going to fall apart. I'm going to be glorious, just like Jesus is glorious, and I rejoice in that hope. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3 these words, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
So do you feel that hope this morning? Do you have this joy that comes out of the salvation experience of being justified and having peace and having grace and resulting in this hope of a future glory here and now in our lives? Because God intends us that we should. But there are times in our life where life is so hard and so difficult that we struggle to have it without a reminder. I think one of the great uh, stories of of history uh, demonstrates that. It's the story of Ernest Shackleton and his uh, ship, Endurance. Some of you may have noticed that in the news recently, they found his ship two miles below the surface down in the Antarctic. This is the book. It's written by Alfred Lansing. And if you're looking for the best book on leadership ever written, this is it. If you're looking for the best book on courage, this is it. In fact, this was such an inspiring story that focused on the family, and Dr. James Dobson wrote the foreword to this edition because they said this is what it takes to endure. Endurance was his family motto, so that's why he named the ship, but the story of his life brought him to a point of endurance. So his men, 22 men and himself, started out from a whaling village at the island of South Georgia in the South Atlantic. And as they're going down, they want to cross the, uh, the southern polar cap, be the first explorers to do that, from one side to the other. As they're heading down there to Waddell Bay, things immediately went wrong, and the weather turned bitterly cold, and uh, this, the uh, uh, ocean was soon filled with blocks of floating ice, and, and eventually it threatened to crush their ship. Uh, so over a period of days, the, the, the ice pack grew and grew, and finally it closed in and held the ship fast. So for 10 months, they're in the ship floating in this ice pack. And they're floating further and further away from land. And finally, on April 2nd, 1916, the ship was crushed by the tons of pressure of the ice. And so now they're adrift on an ice flow. And they were able to um, get uh, their sleeping bags, some tents, uh, food, their dogs, their sleds, and three lifeboats. And so they're on this ice flow, and for five months... Without the ship, they're now floating on this ice flow. And as the winter turns to spring, the ice flow begins to get thinner and thinner and thinner. To finally, it's only a foot thick, and it's floating up and down with the waves. And they realized, you know, it's probably time to take to the boats. So they got in their lifeboats, and they rowed for six days in the the wildest, most fierce oceans in the world. And they finally reached this desperate little spit of land called Elephant Island uninhabited, ice-covered, tiny little island, and it's completely out of the, the uh, shipping lanes. There's no possibility of rescue, and there's hardly anything to eat. 22 of the men are unable to go on out of the full 27. I think I said 22, but there were 27. So Shackleton takes five, and they took the third boat, covered it over with wood from the second and uh, first boat, and they set sail for the original destination of Georgia Island, where they first started out. But this island is 800 nautical miles from Georgia Island. And they realize there's fog, it's still wintry, they can hardly see the sun. In fact, as they're taking sextant readings, there were only three times in three weeks they could even see the sun to get a reading. And they knew if they were three degrees off, they would miss Georgia Island by 100 or more miles. 100-foot waves, ice, frostbit hands. Food was uh, polluted by the salt water. Uh, They've got um, open sores, blistered lips. But on the 17th day, 
they sighted Georgia Island. The whaling village was here, mountains in the middle, they landed here. Only three of them were able to actually walk. They went over the mountains, down to the whaling village, knocked at the door of the, of the uh, head of the whaling company, didn't even recognize them. They hadn't changed clothes in almost two years. Hadn't had a shower in two years, you can imagine. Beards, thin oilskin clothing, and the guy opens the door and Shackleton says, I'm Ernest Shackleton, and I need a ship. That next day, he took one of the whaling vessels and tried to get his men, couldn't get there. Came back, got a stouter ship, tried to get there, couldn't get there. Third attempt, failed. Fourth attempt, he finally reached them. Now, would you say this is a, a moment when they needed to endure? They were on that little spit of land 150 days, five months, and the only thing that gave them hope was every morning, the second-in-command would get up. His name was Frank Wild. He would get the guys out of the boats. They would crawl out from underneath these underturned boats, and he would say to all of the men, every single morning, get your things ready, boys. The boss is coming back today. Every day, 150 days. And that is what gave them the hope to endure. And the Word of God tells us that we have this statement to us, that we have a future hope, a hope of change from here and now, from the struggles we go through, from all of the difficulties, of the glory of God, something new and better and incredibly different, much like these men were looking forward to. So God tells us that when we face every kind of trial, all sorts of trials, and we endure, it's really because of this one thing, the hope of the glory of God. Paul says, secondly, in verses 3 through 5, you notice this is when he pushes toward endurance. He says, God's gift of suffering and our endurance in it teaches us about God's love. Look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces this endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You notice he says, hold on, not only is there all this stuff that we just talked about, but there's more. God gave us this amazing gift of salvation and the hope of eternal glory, but we can still exalt in our sufferings because we know that suffering does something for us. It implants the love of God in us. So it, it produces these qualities as we suffer and endure. And he says this hope is absolutely certain. There is this confidence that comes from the experience of God's love in our hearts as we endure applied through the power of the Holy Spirit. In our first church, Lisa and I met a wonderful couple this was back in, gosh, the 1980s, so it was a little while ago. But the husband had been a World War II Marine who had assaulted the beaches of Guadalcanal, Peleliu, and Iwo Jima. He was one tough cookie. After the war, he survived through all of it. He became an uh, L.A. Motorcycle, motorcycle cop. Again, not an easy job. And he raised these three beautiful daughters to adulthood. They lived right down the beach in San Clemente. And um, as they were raising their daughters, they, they all got established in life. One day something happened that made everything else that they had endured before that time uh, pale 
in the shadow of a new terror. They were accused of what is now known as false memory syndrome. But back then, it wasn't really even a thing. All they knew is that one of their daughters had become depressed. She went to a professional who had been starting to explore and dabble with the idea of suppressed memories, and he convinced her that she was depressed because her mom and dad had sexually abused her as a child, both mom and dad, which was completely not true. But she was convinced of it, and so for seven long years, seven years, there were rashes and violent accusations against them. There were court battles. There were huge legal fees. It was exhausting. It was terrifying, and it was incredibly sad. And as Lisa and I would go and pray with them and talk with them, we witnessed Bud and Alice being transformed from this tough Marine cop, from a, a woman who had lived with him and raised her kids. They began to be transformed, and they grew spiritually, and they felt God was more real. And finally, at the end of this all, when they were finally completely exonerated, they found out the whole thing was a manufactured mess in their particular case. I sat down with them and said, how are you guys doing? And both of them, in fact, it was Bud who talked first. He said, Doug, we wouldn't trade this experience for anything because in it, we've discovered how real God is and we've discovered the love of God and we wouldn't give that up for anything. And you can imagine, who would say that kind of thing after having gone through something like that? But God's point is the gift of suffering and our endurance, and it teaches us about the love of God. He comes alongside of us, and he works with us, and he assists us, and he comforts us. It changes us. But did you know it also changes the church? Take a look at Romans 15. We've got two more points. We'll go through them a little more quickly. Romans 15, verses 1 through 3. I love the way this begins. Paul writes, we who are strong. Who do you think that's referring to? The people who have gone through endurance, who have discovered how great justification is, peace, grace, hope, who've been able to joy in it because they know it produces stuff in them. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Why? To build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. As Jesus did the will of God, as he did the works of God, as people reacted to what God was doing, the reproaches fell on Christ rather than on God. He says in verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that what? Through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Has God given you past trials, <clears throat> maybe present trials, and you've realized, oh, they're strengthening my faith, my resolve, my hope. Have you felt that? He says, if that's so, 
I want to turn your attention to others who are struggling. So when we finally find the end of a, a difficult moment in life, a, a, a wall that opens up before us, we finally get to the end of it, the, the purpose of that is not to say, wow, this has been really rough for a while. This is my time. It's my time in, to enjoy and sit back and relax. God says, no, no, there's a hard no on that mentality. I want you to use the strength and the hope and the peace that I gave to you for others who are currently having no hope. Pay it forward. Please your neighbor. Now, this is not people-pleasing. I don't know if, if you were to raise your hand to say, don't do it, by the way. I'm a people-pleaser. There would be a few among us. I, I tend to be that way myself. I want to make sure people are doing well. This isn't people-pleasing. This is people-building. And this is part of our, actually part of our intentional relational discipleship, isn't it? It's branch number three, sacrifice. So God's primary call to you and I, as Christians, when we get through one tough time, is not to go and just relax, but is to look for somebody else around us and to say, if you're failing, if you're struggling, I want to come alongside of you, and I want to build you up. I want to lift you up. I don't want to tear you down. I don't know why it is, but we as Christians oftentimes think the best way to help someone grow is to criticize them. Have you ever noticed that? It's true. And this is one of the bad raps on Christianity is we tend to look down on others and say, well, if you would only just, well, why didn't you? You should have. God says, no, no, the whole purpose is to come alongside and build them up, lift them up, because you've got the resources to do it. I love what one commentator wrote this week. He says, criticism is the act of, un, of judging unfavorably or fault-finding. It is often appropriate to judge a person, thing, or action unfavorably. So sometimes it is appropriate. And he says, in fact, a true friend will speak the truth even when it's hard to hear. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, Proverbs 27. So sometimes we are called alongside to build them up with tough love, but notice what he goes on to say. He says, however, there is a significant difference between helping someone improve and having a critical spirit. A critical spirit is never pleased. A critical spirit expects and finds disappointment wherever it looks. It's the opposite of the love in 1 Corinthians 13. A critical spirit um, arrogantly judges, is easily provoked, accounts for every wrong, and never carries any hope of being pleased. Such an attitude damages the critiqued as well as the critic. Biblical criticism is helpful, loving, and based on truth. Correction is to be gentle. It comes from love, not from a sour personality. Galatians 5 says... The Spirit wants to produce in us what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if criticism can't be expressed in keeping with the fruit of the Spirit, it's better left unsaid. Our speech should build up and edify. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and all the more. Build one another up. Hebrews 10.24, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not surprisingly, Jesus is the best example of that. Look back into the text, you see there? He's quoting Psalm 69, which says, It is for your sake that I have borne reproach. That dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In other words, Jesus said, I, I keep going back to do the work of God for humanity, but it's often met by pushback by opposition. 
And he says that is why we are called to endure. Last point. We're right about at the clock. God's gift of his word works alongside our endurance to promote harmony as well as hope. This book that you have in your hands this morning, and I hope you have a printed copy of it, by the way, because when my kids saw me on my phone, they never knew I was on the Bible. They could oftentimes think, oh, he's checking the sports scores or you know, real estate or whatever it might be. I hope you have a printed one. But if you have a digital one this morning, you know God says this book is designed to work alongside us to produce endurance and hope and harmony. Take a look at Romans 15, 4 through 7. For whatever was written in former days, what part of the Bible is that? Yeah, the Old Testament. What was written in the past, we're writing the New Testament now, Paul says, but what was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that fascinating? All of the Old Testament scriptures, all of them, were written with you and I in mind so that we know God wrote them for the individuals at that time, the nations at that time, the circumstances at that time. But Paul, inspired by God, says, hey, the Old Testament was actually written for you guys at Trinity today. And this is one of the reasons we should be reading the Old Testament and understanding it. And he had three purposes. You see them in the text. Number one, to instruct us in how to endure. Gosh, you can look in the Old Testament to find the stories throughout the pages of how people endured. So he instructs us through their lives to encourage us with hope because you can see how God worked in their lives and produced good. Joseph's in prison for 13 years, betrayed by his brothers, thrown into prison by Potiphar, and he ends up being second in command, all because of God. And at the end of it all, he turns to his brothers, and what does he say? God did this for our good. And so it gives us hope, but thirdly, so that we'll be in harmony with one another. How can you have harmony with somebody else? Let me ask you, just to think for a minute. What produces harmony in your life and mine when you have a relationship? Isn't it the things we have in common? Aren't the things that we enjoy together, that we see together, we think together, the things that produce that harmonious relationship? This is what produces lifelong friendships. You just have a connection. I still have a, a connection from Moody Bible Institute that I keep in touch with in Michigan because of our harmony, the connections. So what do we have in connection in relationship to endurance? What we have is the experience of suffering. How many of you here have never suffered? Can I see your hands? Right? We have all struggled in life. We have all hit walls. We have all been struggling and feeling like we're just not going to make it. We're lonely. We are feeling like we don't have what it takes. And God says, look, as a Christian, I did these things for you. I created salvation for you. And you have justification, and you have peace, and you have grace, and you have the hope of eternal glory. I gave that all to you to help you endure. And I want you to have the hope of what the Holy Spirit does in your life, to strengthen you so that when you are strong, you can turn around to the other persons who are struggling. And we know people who are struggling. And you can say, let me come and help you. 
Let me build you up. Let me sacrifice from my life to help you in your life. And when we do that, what happens is we find a harmony of life because we're all looking at it the same way. We're all coming at it from the same perspective. God is doing the same work in us. And he says the outcome of that is quite simply one thing. Able to praise God together with one voice. This is what we do as Christians when we come together. This is what we do in our small groups. This is what we do in our relationships as we praise God together with one voice. But there is the one key. We have to learn how to endure. We have to find our encouragement in God. We have to remember to exalt in the hope of the glory of God, that end time that God says, you've made it, you crossed the finish line. We have to grow in our experience of God's love as we do. And at the end of it, got to build others up for their good because that is what God has called us to. So this week, you're going to have challenges. Would you agree with that? Whether it's in school, business, home, community, relationships, you are going to have challenges. And God says, I want you to endure. Here are the things that come out of it. Joy and hope and harmony. Keep in mind what I can do in your heart. And with that in mind, let's just take a moment and pray and thank God for all of that. Heavenly Father, uh, we are so thankful that you have justified us and that we can have peace with God. Father, if there are individuals here this morning who don't feel that in their lives, I pray that you would, through the power of the Holy Spirit, remind them of what you have done and that you don't see them as guilty any longer when they have confessed their faith in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've never agreed that Jesus is God the Son, that he paid for your sins on the cross, lived a perfect life, gave you that perfection at the cross, if you have never taken it, God says, oh, please come to the table. Please come and be declared not guilty. It's a free gift. I want you to have it. So, Father, we pray that as we face this week, we would be encouraged by these things. We would build each other up. But, Father, we also pray for Israel today. We want to continue to do this as your people because you have chosen them. We know this. uh, The the state of Israel today is not fully uh, embracing the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But as Paul writes in Romans 9, 10, and 11, you have not given up on them. There is still a remnant. And God, we pray for them because they need peace. They need to have the grace of God in their lives. They need to have safety. And Father, we ask for wisdom for them as their leaders and other global leaders seek to bring a resolution to this war. God, may it be a resolution that provides the good safety, the return of captives. Father, we know that ultimately peace comes from Jesus Christ. So we pray that there would be a movement among the people of Israel of return to the Messiah, that they would turn their hearts toward Jesus and find the true lasting peace as well as temporal peace. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.